welcome Jason Vedrick of the Heritage Foundation to the Show yes. Me Institute podcast. Um, really happy, excited, happy and excited to talk to you today because uh, we're going to be talking about something that is very um, relevant to Missouri that comes up all the time in our legislative process that really is a big sticking point for the state, which is that the idea that school choice is only for kids in suburbs and cities and that it is inappropriate in rural areas. You're the expert on this. You have a new report out on school choice in rural areas. And um, I just, just tell me why that's wrong. Yeah, I mean, primarily we, we hear two arguments actually, uh, often within the span of a breath. And uh, the first one is that well, school choice just isn't going to help in rural areas because there's no options besides the local district school. Uh, you know, it's, it's that or homeschool. Uh, the other thing that we hear is that if we had a school choice program, so many kids in rural areas would be fleeing from their local district school to, you know, take advantage of all those different options that the local school would collapse. Uh, now, so obviously, contradictory statements, basically. Right. Right. These are mutually exclusive. They can't both be true at the same time, but they can both be false. And so what we've done is taken a look at the the evidence around the country uh, and specifically in states that have longstanding, robust education choice policies like Arizona. Uh, and we find uh, first there's a lot more options in rural areas than most people are aware of. Uh, obviously, not as many as in urban areas, but a lot of options. Uh, and secondly, that uh, the public school systems not only have not collapsed in states like Arizona, uh, but they have improved over time uh, with a robust school choice environment. Right. So that's I mean, that's kind of the idea that it's it's two it's it's a twofold uh, benefit, which is to say the people who live in the rural areas get to have more than just this is where you have to go to school, whether it works or not. And then. It should, theoretically, the idea of this going back to the 1950s is that if every district doesn't have a captive market, then they will have to work a little bit harder to make sure that the students who are there want to stay. Basically. Yes, that's exactly right. So uh, so here are some of the other things that I hear about rural school choice in Missouri. Uh, it'll cost teachers their jobs. These teachers have spouses who need health insurance, that the local high school is the community center, and it's a bigger thing than just a school to these people. And um, what would you say to these two things, that it's a jobs program and that it's just like uh, an endemic part of the community in these small rural areas? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I think our education system should primarily not be a jobs program. Um, that is a secondary benefit, but we always have to be putting the kids in the system first. Uh, there are other jobs available. Uh, the other thing is actually it can help keep jobs local. You know, so for example, if there if there is a family that the local public school just is not a good fit for their child, right? Now they have a dilemma if there's no school choice, if there's no other options. Uh are they going to leave the area and move somewhere else um, to, to get their kid the education they deserve? Or are they going to stay in the community that they know and love, um, but know that they're not doing right by their child? So giving them more options allows them to stay where they are, 
keep the job that they have where they are, stay involved and invested in that community <clears throat> while at the same time getting their child the education that they deserve. Now, if, okay. you, if you look, if you, go, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say, if you, if you look at Arizona, okay, they've had school choice options for more than 30 years. They've had a universal tax credit scholarship program uh, since the late 1990s. Uh, they've got uh, education savings accounts for more than a decade. Uh, they expanded them last year to all students. Arizona is ground zero for school choice. If yeah. if the opponents were right that school choice was going to destroy the public school system, you would see it there first. Sure. Uh, in 1993, there were 224 rural school districts uh, in, in Arizona. By 2019, you had 226, I'm sorry, not just rural, uh, statewide, 226 school districts. Uh, there was one that had closed down, but it was in an area, in a county that didn't even have a private school. So it wasn't school choice uh, that, that was to blame. Uh, it has been a very stable system. Uh, but look at their test scores. Sure, so let's, let's if, look at the test scores. Yeah, if you look at the uh, National Assessment of Education Progress. Uh, this is also known as the nation's report card. Uh, right. And you look at Arizona's uh, rural students' fourth and eighth grade reading scores. They increased from uh, 2007. That's the first year that we were able to disaggregate by uh, rural or non-rural. So if you look at their scores from 2007 to 2019, the year before the pandemic, you had an increase in 21 points uh, for the Arizona rural students. Rural students nationwide over that same time period had an increase of two points. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and if you look at their science scores, I mean, the science scores were amazing. It was another like 25 point increase, whereas uh, nationally, the combined fourth and eighth grade scores went up four points. So Arizona doing really, really well. Uh Post-pandemic, obviously across the board nationwide, you had uh, declines, but Arizona was still eight points ahead of where they were in math and reading, um, uh, 2007 to 2022, whereas the rest of the country actually had a 17-point decline. Yeah. Uh, so they were uh, the rural schools nationwide are significantly behind where they were. Uh, whereas Arizona's are, are still ahead. So can you tell me a little bit about in Arizona, the supply side in rural areas, in, in rural areas where you have ESAs, where you, um, where parents can choose charter schools, like everywhere in Arizona, right? Um, do you see that in rural areas, private schools have opened or charter schools have opened to serve parents who want to have a different option? Uh, yes, we have. Uh, so we've actually seen uh, that over the last decade in Arizona, you've had about a doubling in the uh, enrollment in private schools. So in, in rural areas, or in rural in rural areas, okay. in, in the in the, in the uh, five counties uh, for which we have data that are uh, rural, uh, and and now about seven percent of kids statewide are using some sort of private school choice program, and then another twenty percent. <clears throat> Another twenty percent are using uh, charter schools, so it's one of the the most um, one of the highest charter school enrollment per capita nationwide. Um, if you look at uh, this, is a study by the Brookings Institution a few years ago, so it's already <clears throat> it's kind of out of date because it's from twenty fifteen, uh, but it's the the most recent data we have. 
they looked at uh, students nationwide, what percent of kids in each state live in the, the same zip code as at least one charter school. Uh, in Arizona, it was 84 uh, percent. Most states were considerably below that. It's got to be um, less than uh, 10 in Missouri. Uh, yeah, I think that's the case. Actually, if you went by zip code, uh, it's got to be like almost no one. Right. Uh, and in Arizona, I mean, that's that's then I think now it's it's probably north of 90 uh, percent. Sure. The charter sector has just been been booming uh, nationwide. 70 percent of kids in rural areas are within 10 miles of at least one private school. Uh, now it's closer to like 95% uh, for kids that are in urban areas, but uh, that's still pretty high for rural areas, right? 70%. Yeah. I think we people don't... are surprised because, you know, when I talk about it, the, the number uh, of private of rural private schools nationally and the number of rural charter schools, it's uh, rural charter schools. There's about a thousand, I think. Uh, schools in rural areas, and they range from tiny, tiny, tiny to a very, you know, a decent size, and um, a lot of private schools in rural areas. But I get that pushback too. Like we can't have an ESA program for uh, rural students because there's nowhere for them to go. Right, and what we're also seeing is is the rise of other options like microschooling, for right. example. Right. So there was a group uh, now microschools. These are schools that are usually about five to fifteen students. Many of them are operating out of um, you know, living rooms or garages, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, an extra classroom at a church. Uh, actually, sometimes they're even operating out of empty public school classrooms. Um, yeah. There's a group in Arizona called Prenda Microschools. They were founded in 2018. They just had a handful of students. Just before the pandemic, they already had uh, more than 100 microschools across the state of Arizona uh, with close to 1,000 students participating. Then obviously because of the pandemic and school shutdowns and parents who are looking like simultaneously for in-person instruction, but yeah. with small groups to limit their exposure to the virus, um, it, it expanded dramatically. It came back down a little bit since then. Uh, but now uh, this year, the 2022-23 school year, uh, They've got more than three three thousand students in microschools across six states. Uh, in Arizona alone, uh, they've got close to five hundred students that are in rural areas, uh, and that's up uh, more than twenty five percent since twenty nineteen. So, and that's just they one really part are of school. Yeah, that's just and that's, and that's yeah, and that's not all microschools. That's just right, right, one right. particular chain, right? So, just to like uh, recap for emphasis, in areas where rural school students have multiple options. They actually are doing better than they used to be doing before they had options rather than doing worse. I don't see how it couldn't be true because in Missouri, we know the Show Me Institute did a study, it was a long time ago. I don't think anything's changed uh, on the percentage of our high schools that don't offer calculus or physics. It's like 30% because we have so many very, very small high schools, fewer than 100 students or fewer than 50 students, and they can't offer very much in the way of coursework. And yeah, you can go to you can go to a virtual school now in Missouri if that's what you really want to do. But those students should have an in-person option if you want to take calculus. That's right. Um, although you know, virtual does work for some kids. Sure. It doesn't work for everybody. And I, I think it's also worth noting that there's a difference between an intentionally designed virtual program, yeah. right? 
that that from the outset they said we are going to teach kids online and yeah. they are they are designing their program that way versus you know emergency zoom school where you take in person instruction and then you try on a dime to switch to yeah. you know, teaching the same way over zoom that really didn't work uh there was actually um a study on this uh that that ed choice did and they looked at uh the the largest um online provider which is k-12 yep. uh and they compared uh they did a parent survey and they compared k-12 versus uh you know families that had enrolled their children in brick and mortar schools that shut down and were online yeah uh, you know and then you had uh you know fewer than 30 percent say my child learned a lot <laughs> in in the right. brick and mortar uh, whereas you had more than 90% who said my child learned a lot, uh, when they were using K-12. So there really is a difference. Um, and K-12 is, is much more in rural areas, uh, than in, <clears throat> than, than traditional public schools. Uh, so among traditional public schools, about 15% of their enrollment is in rural areas. Uh, but K-12, uh, close to 40% of their enrollment oh, yeah. is coming from rural areas. So, I mean, it, it's it's just the case that you've got, uh, like you said, somebody who, say, you know, wants to take calculus or, or some other course that's just not offered, mm -hmm. uh, they can then, if they had an ESA, an education savings account, uh, right. they could take that money and they could go enroll in something like K-12. Yeah, no, uh, we've, I, I talk about Arizona a lot, and Arizona definitely has this, you know, fantastic uh result with the national assessment and florida they've gone from being in the 40s compared to other states 44th 46th in the 90s to like fourth and sixth they have a ton of school choice for parents and over half of parents in florida take advantage of some program or another and they have done really really well but now we've got iowa We've got Utah in this last week, basically, I've opened it up and said, look, any parent in the state, and those are very rural states, any parent in the state, for the most part, their qualifications are pretty generous, up to 300% of poverty in Iowa. And I think any student, you correct me if I'm wrong, in Utah. Well, actually, both say Iowa starts at 300%, but over three years, they're phasing to universal. So by year three, every child in Iowa will have access uh, and then, yes, in Utah, it, it's open to everybody, but there's a budget of about $42 million. Yeah. So not everybody bit. will be able to participate, but it's um, both states are moving toward like an Arizona style, you know, education savings account for everyone. And West Virginia. Yes. Another very rural is, state. Right. Correct. So this is not New York and California doing this. These are these very rural states mm -hmm. where uh well, West Virginia, their performance has been pretty dismal and uh, parents, they don't have a lot of options. Uh, they 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 are struggling to attain middle class status. I mean, it's a very difficult state to be in. And those kids need access to multiple options as much as any kid in the country, to be honest. And I think it's uh, it's great that the lawmakers there have recognized that and have recognized that it's not just urban kids who need uh to uh to find a different school sometimes zach and i were just talking about this zach our communications director we were just talking about all the number of reasons why somebody might not uh fit at the uh, elementary middle or high school they go to from it's too small it's too big doesn't offer the classes i want i'm being bullied uh they don't have the sport that i want 
Um, it's too far from my house. It's not close to my mom's job. I mean, I can think of a dozen reasons that are not test scores and they're all very valid. Yeah. And look, a lot, a lot of us in uh, think tank world were, were probably the, the students who did very well in the traditional classroom environment. Uh, but there are a lot of students who don't yeah. do well. I mean, even in one family, you know, sure. uh, you know, your firstborn child maybe works for them. Um, but that second or third born child, maybe uh, they're looking for something where they can move around a little bit more, more hands on, you know, maybe a more Montessori style, uh, you know, so have, I mean, in every other area of our lives, we've got all these different options where we can customize everything to our particular needs and interests. And then there's just one area where we say, and you're going to be assigned to this particular service based on the location of the home that you can afford. Uh, and I think a lot of families, uh, especially during COVID, are waking up to this idea that, you know what, maybe this one option is is one, one size fits some, but not one size fits all. Um, aspirationally, they want to be all things to all children, but the reality is, no one school is going to be the best fit for every kid who just happens to live nearby. So what we should do instead is empower families directly to choose the learning environments that work best for their children. Another uh, thing that Arizona has is open enrollment where you can cross district lines, right? You guys have had that for a while. Yeah. And actually in Maricopa County, um, where the majority of the state lives, I mean, that's Phoenix and Mesa and yeah. Glendale and whatnot. Uh, you've got, more than 30% of students that are attending a school, uh, a public school, a traditional public school that they are not zoned to. So when you combine those kids with the 20 plus percent that are in charter and the other, you know, seven plus percent that, that are using the education savings account or tax credit scholarship program, you've got a majority of students who are attending some learning environment. And I'm saying that learning environment, not because it's not just schools, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, besides the school that they are assigned to. So do you think that uh, lawmakers in rural areas have finally woken up to the idea that this could be good for the, their families as well? Do you think it's been political pressure or do you think that it's just the um, longevity of the programs, which is to say, like in Arizona, like you said, it's been since the 90s, Florida since the 90s, Minnesota since the early 90s. So now you've got a lot of uh, parents who uh, whose parents chose their school. Yeah, I, I think Second look, generation a, school choice. I would say it's a combination of things. The longevity of the programs, even in states that don't have them, um, you can point to them. So, you know, initially there's a lot of skepticism and fear. What's this going to do to our existing system? Is it all going to collapse? But then you can point to states like Florida and Arizona and say, oh, okay, they've had that for decades. They're doing better than they were before. Clearly, you know, even if you can't make a, you know, draw a causal relationship and prove that, you know, school choice caused these things. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of evidence that, that they did, but even if you say, I don't know what it did or didn't do, um, I can tell you at least that what it didn't do actually is that it didn't destroy the system or even significantly harm it. Uh, yeah. Are the legislators waking up? Yes, because the parents are waking up. Uh, actually, I was just this week speaking to a number of legislators in Iowa and they were saying, you know, the parents were getting upset over the last few years about a variety of different issues, right? Some of them were upset about school closures, uh, you know, uh, the Des Moines system was was closed for like nine months. Uh, they've lost uh, 
statewide about 6,000 students, uh, which is a lot for a small state. And they're not even sure where these students went. Like, do they, are they homeschooling now? Do they move out of state? Like, we have no idea where these kids are. Uh, and, you know, but then, you know, because parents, you know, had Zoom school, they're, they're seeing what's going on in the classroom. Some of them are upset about the low quality of instruction. Then some of them are upset about uh, books that they were finding in the public school library that they thought were pornographic or just inappropriate. Uh, then other ones were upset about, uh, you know, some of the, the politicization of the classroom. And uh, so they kept, the parents just kept coming back to the legislature saying, fix this for us, fix this, because they were going to their local school board and the local school board was just not listening to them, yep. zoning, you know, tuning them out, hoping they would go away. And it's like, well, what, I'm going to wait two years for the next school board election and then try and run. So then they're turning to the legislature. And one of the legislators said, well, you know what, it was like it was like playing whack-a-mole because it was just something coming up all the time. Yeah. So they said, what if we just gave you school choice? What if we just said, you know, if, if this school's not working for you, you can go somewhere else. And by the way, when you're negotiating with the school board, if you're not a captive audience anymore, if they know that if they don't placate you, you can just take your child and your money and go somewhere else you're going to have more bargaining power and the parents loved it. So they were pushing for it and pushing for it. Yeah. I think there is the threat in rural areas of losing the teacher vote. And I, you know, have often said, well, there's always the parent vote. <laughs> you know what I mean? Teacher votes big for sure, but there's also the parent vote and there's 20 kids in every classroom for one teacher. Right. So. Yeah. I yeah, think actually in the Republican primary in Texas last year. So I was in March. They had they have a bunch of sort of ballot questions that, that it's just they're just resolutions. Obviously, it's a primary, so it's not nothing binding. Uh, but Proposition nine said parents and guardians should have the right to select schools, whether public or private, for their children, and the funding should follow the student. Eighty eight percent of Texas Republicans said yes to question nine. Wow. Twelve percent said no. And some of the highest support came from rural areas. So Culberson, 97%, uh, yeah. in McMullen, 90%, in Kennedy, Texas, 100% of voters in the county apparently uh, voted yes. Uh, Terrell was 90%. So, I mean, very strong support for school choice coming from rural areas. Yeah. And so I guess people are finally noticing. Now, did you ever think that within a year, year and a half or so, four states would pass universal school choice. I mean, Milton Friedman thought of this or, you know, published his idea about this in the 50s and unfortunately did not long enough, live long enough to see it. But did you ever think it would go boom, 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 boom like that fast? Uh, I did not think it would be this fast. Me neither. Uh, I, I mean, there a few years ago, pre-pandemic, uh, I had predicted that within 20 years, we would have 10 states that that went universal because uh, I saw that Arizona was going in that direction. I saw yeah. that Florida was going in that direction and um, <clears throat> they may yet this year. And there were a few other states. And I thought, you know, 20 years from now, we might have 10. Yeah. Uh, I think we'll have 10 by the end of the year. Yeah. Missouri's got a bill that they're considering. I don't expect it to go very far because we're trying to get over the hump of open enrollment, which has <clears throat> been so very difficult to get across to folks, even though parents want it. Uh, that, that's been a tough one, but we have a bill that we're considering. And I can imagine that, you know, for a lot of states, and Missouri is certainly one of them, 
we need to think about whether or not families are staying or moving in. I don't think that they're moving in very much, but we also have declining enrollment in Missouri. Well, look, the, the latest morning consult uh, monthly tracking poll shows that 68% of adults in Missouri say that they are in favor of an education savings account policy. Yeah. Uh, and if you just narrow it down to parents of K-12 children, uh, 76%, so more than three out of four, say that they support ESAs. Uh, so there's a lot of support there. Well, do you think that, um, do you think that the, you know, air quotes, education establishment, let's say in Missouri, it's kind of the associations of superintendents, of which we have 500 and some association of school boards and teachers unions. Do you think that they are panicked? I mean, I think so. Just looking at- um, <laughs> That's uh, why I was asking. I think they're getting jittery. I, I can say that in 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 Utah and Iowa, we saw them really freaking out when this happened. Yeah. Um, but you know what? Yeah, we've had these programs for a while in, in, in Arizona, Florida, et cetera. The public schools are still there, sure. right? Uh, and, and actually they're doing better. And why are they doing better? I mean, a part of it is the competition story, right? That when you know you don't have a captive audience, you know, you've got to take measures to improve performance. Uh, but a part of it too is, is just that it's not actually the students that are really excelling who are leaving. Uh, Florida has been doing a, a longitudinal study for, for more than a decade now. And every year, one of the things they look at is the test scores of kids who are coming into the scholarship program. And those kids' test scores are lower on average than sure. their demographic peers. Yeah. Now, wait a second. I thought it's the best and brightest students, no, right? No, no, no. All so the people great who aren't happy, are right? Yeah. Exactly. If you're doing well, the if ones you're who thriving, are not yeah. yeah, if you're thriving in your assigned school, you're probably going to stay there. It's the kid yeah. who's just not doing well. Yeah. The parent's like, okay, this isn't working. Let me try something else. I'm going to take this kid out and put yeah. him somewhere else. But after a few years of being in the scholarship program, they're performing at the national average, which means because Florida's programs for low-income students, they're outperforming their demographic peers, wow. right? So even if the public schools did nothing in response, it's going to raise their test scores because it's the lower test score students who are leaving, right? right. And that's better for everyone. It's yeah, better for that kid. It's better for the school that they're leaving. Like it's having every child in the school in a learning environment that is working for them is better for all children. Okay, one last thing I'm going to ask you to prognosticate about. The universal ESA program in Arizona, you guys have a new governor. Is it at risk? Uh, so on the one hand, I don't want parents uh, to uh, let their guard down. You absolutely always have to be vigilant, right? That is the price of liberty, eternal vigilance. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I don't think it is in immediate danger. Uh, first of all, the, the Speaker of the House was the majority leader last year. He, you know, Ben Toma was the sponsor of the legislation that expanded the Empowerment Scholarship Account Program to Universal. It was his signature achievement, and I don't think he's going to let the, the new governor undo that. Yeah. Uh, the new governor, uh, Katie Hobbs, in her budget, uh, rolled back the expansion, uh, and both legislative leaders uh, in the House and Senate said this is dead on arrival. So they're going to do their own thing. Uh, okay. Secondly, the Republican caucus, even though 
Um, and unfortunately, in Arizona, it is very much a party issue. In some states, like in Florida, it's becoming more bipartisan over time. There are a number yeah. of states. You know, the first modern voucher program was a bipartisan coalition in Wisconsin, right? Yeah. Uh, Republican Governor Tommy Thompson, Democratic Assemblywoman Polly Williams. But uh, in Arizona, it's become a party issue. Uh, the Republican caucus is, uh, the, their majority is slim in both chambers, but more pro-school choice than they were before. They had three sort of squishy, sometimes anti-school choice votes. All of them lost their primaries. And so they have a much stronger coalition uh, in favor of school choice. I don't think that they're going to uh, let it, you know, let the governor chip away at it. Plus the governor didn't run on it. She just has no mandate to do anything about it. Uh, And I think most importantly is that you had 10,000 students using education savings accounts last year. Uh, this year, the program went into effect. It was delayed because of a potential uh, ballot initiative that failed, uh, but that delayed implementation. So it didn't open up until after the school year started. Uh, and already we now have about 50,000 kids wow. participating in the program. Now they're going to start applying for next year. Sure. So you're going to have a significant jump. It wouldn't shock me if we had north of 75,000 students participating next year. No governor, no matter how opposed to the program, is going to be able to rip it away from all those families. Yeah, that's great. Well, I hope that we are, you know, uh, on the cusp of this spreading everywhere. I think that People are, as people move around, they're going to want to get what people in Arizona, Iowa, Utah, West Virginia have. Yeah. And I should, I should so, note, I mean, you almost have it. You've got a program in place in Missouri. You've got very tiny. education savings. I know you program. like it, Jason. Well, it's no, tiny. It's, it's the camel's nose. Um, the oh. thing is, it's got to be implemented, right? I mean, you've got, yeah. you got to get people aware that the program exists. It's still teeny. And we signed need to up. raise the cap. Yeah. And then and then you've got to put pressure on the state legislature to expand it to more people. So you've got a good yeah. start, but it, you've got a, obviously a long way to go in terms of implementation. Yeah. And it's and it and it excludes rural communities by by law. It excludes them, which, which is it's discriminatory. That's right. That, that, that has to equal, change, you know, equal protection or whatever. So so great to talk to you, Jason. Thank you so much for joining us. Talking about your report. That's always a topic of interest to me, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, they can find it at the Heritage Institute. Sir, they can find it at the Heritage Foundation website. Should get the name of my own organization correct. Uh, and it's called Rustic Renaissance Education Choice in Rural America. Love it. Thank you so much.